Well, good morning. Thanks for joining us. If this is one of your first times to come, I'm well, first time, I'm so glad you're here. I know sometimes it's hard to walk into a new place. If uh, you are joining us online, we're grateful for that. Appreciate that too. So when I was a junior in high school, one of the most painful things, um, March of my junior year, my family moved from suburban Chicago to suburban Houston. In Chicago, I was in a school of about uh, 2,000, high school of 2,000. I felt like I knew 1,800 people. That might be a little bit of an exaggeration. But when I moved to Houston, I was invisible. Nobody knew me. Nobody knew who I was. And I was in chemistry class with the guy who would be the star of the football team the next year. He was a junior also. Um, he would lead the district in rushing. He would get a scholarship to the University of North Texas. And I was just hoping he would notice me. Because back in the day, I was connected with all the people. Uh, even on a chemistry test, I fed him answers, hoping he would be my friend. But he was nice, but he didn't include me. He never invited me to sit with him at lunch. And so I remained invisible on the margin, hoping someone would notice me. Maybe you felt that way, hoping someone would notice, and they didn't. What I want to ask today is, how does Jesus, how did Jesus interact with marginalized people? We're going to look at that today. So if you've got a Bible, if you'd open it to John 4, we're going to start in verse 1, and we're going to go through verse 42, asking this question, how did Jesus interact with marginalized people? How did Jesus interact with marginalized people? Now remember, he's got three years. He's trying to build a church that will go to the world. I mean, he needs some leaders, doesn't he? He needs some influencers. So what's his deal with marginalized people? If you haven't been with us, uh, this Gospel of John was written by John. He spent three years with Jesus in public ministry. And he saw all kind of stuff that made him think, this Jesus is the Christ. I believe he's the son of the living God, the eternally existent God, who took on human flesh. And I want you to know, I, I think you need to know, so I'm writing this account. And he, he writes at the end of the Gospel, I'm writing so you might believe. So there's no uh, bait and switch here. And, and he gives us a, a bunch of evidence so far, we've seen one sign, he'll give us seven, where Jesus took a bunch of water and turned it into wine. And, and one scholar I read said, you know, look at John as a prosecuting attorney trying to convict Jesus of being the Son of God. And he's presenting evidence to show that Jesus is the Son of God. Before God sent Jesus into public ministry, he sent John the Baptist ahead of him to get the people ready. It's been 400 years since Israel had a prophetic word. So John the Baptist is preparing the people. Man, did he draw a crowd. Wigged out the religious leaders. They said, who are you? He said, I'm a voice. Preparing the way. And, and, and we saw John the Baptist begin to point his disciples to Jesus. This is the Christ. This is the Lamb of God who's taken away the sin of the world. A couple weeks ago, we saw a, a Pharisee, a, a religious leader. That they were suspicious of Jesus. Approached Jesus at night and asked him three times, like, who are you? And three times Jesus didn't answer the question. He said, you need to be born again. If you're going to understand who I am, you're going to need to believe that I'm the Son of God, and you're going to need to believe that you need to be regenerated, renewed. Otherwise, it's, you're not going to understand. We talked about going into a 3D movie without glasses. You, you only see in two dimensions. Put on the glasses, you see the third dimension. You will not see me, Jesus says, who I am, until you take me at my word that I'm the Son of God. 
Well, today, um, Jesus is going to be making his way, and he's going to go through Samaria, which I will explain is, is a little surprising. But let's start in John 4, verse 1. It says, Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, being John the Baptist, in parenthesis, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and went again into Galilee. So Jesus knows, he realizes he's being monitored, and I think, I need to get out here. I need to go to a place where I can minister without Big Brother looking over my shoulder. Verse 4 tells a little bit about his route. He says he had to pass through Samaria. Now, if you look at a map, Samaria is the most direct way, but a lot of times Jews went around Samaria. Why? Because the relationship between the Jews and the Samaritans was conflicted. 722 B.C., 700 years before Jesus, uh, the Assyrians came in and they, they conquered Israel right up to uh, the southern line, to, to Judea. And, and they just consumed and subsumed that northern part of Israel, what they call the northern kingdom. Jews were told from the law that you're only to marry another Jew. A lot of these people didn't over the years. They, they intermarried. And in a sense, their, their kids then and their grandkids were not pure. They were, they were half-breeds. And so there was conflict because the Samaritans had sold out. The Samaritans also only accepted the first five books of the Bible as authoritative, what we call the Pentateuch. So the Kings and the Chronicles and the wisdom literature, the Psalms, the prophets, Jeremiah, Isaiah, they had nothing to do with that because they believed that the kingdom, God's work would happen in, in the northern kingdom and the prophets and the literature wisdom said, no, 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 the, the, the line of God was going to come through David and the, the Jerusalem was going to be an anointed city. And the practical outworking of that was this, that the Samaritans and people in the northern kingdom, well, they worked, worshipped on Mount Gerizim where the Jews and... Um, followers of David, house of David, well, they worshiped at the temple in Jerusalem. So some real differences here. So Jesus chooses to go through, even though he may run into some conflict. So verse 5 and 6 says, so he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of the ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour, about noon. So Jesus is weary. He's, he's fully God and fully human, but he's feeling the heat of the day, and he stops, and he needs a drink. Verse 7, there was a woman of Samaria. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. A couple things you need to know here. Usually when women went to draw water, they would go early in the morning or in the evening to avoid the heat of the day. Also, they would travel in groups for safety purposes. This woman is doing neither. Why isn't she in a group? Why is she traveling at noon to get water? I think we'll get some good answers to those questions as we continue in our passage. Verse 8, uh, Jesus alone, why? For his Disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. So in a way, Jesus is sitting there by the well, and he's a little bit of a, an obstacle. She just wants to draw some water, and the dude says, can you, give, can you give me a drink? 
Verse 9, therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, how is that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink since I'm a Samaritan woman? In parentheses, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. So this woman's got two strikes against her. One, she's Samaritan. Two, as a woman, you have no standing. A woman's testimony was not allowed in court. A woman was considered property of her husband. And no man was going to waste his time speaking to another woman. That's a waste of time. So she rightly asked, why are you talking to me? She's on the margin, people. She's got the wrong background and she's got the wrong gender. And here's this Jewish rabbi speaking to her, and she wants to know why. We'll get there, why. Uh, verse 10, Jesus is going to speak spiritually. He's going to speak metaphorically to her. He says, verse 10, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The gift of God, Jesus wants to give you eternal life. Remember, we've talked in John, we're all under, we're all sick. We're all poisoned with sin. Jesus wants to free us from that. He wants to release us from that. That's the gift. He says, I'd give you living water. That's a loaded metaphor in the Old Testament. Living water is symbolic of the life, the cleansing, the restoration that God brings. Most notably, it's used in Jeremiah 2.13. When God, speaking through the prophet Jeremiah, says to the people, calling out their idolatry. Why, why do you build empty cisterns that don't hold water when I'm the source of living water? So Jesus said, I, I want to be the one to give you this water. Verse 11, she said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, with and the well is deep. I'm like, dude, where are you going to get this water? Where do you... Get that living water. It was fed by an underground stream, so she understands living water literally. But things at least 100 feet deep, you have nothing to draw with. How are you going to pull this off? Verse 12, you're not greater than our father Jacob, are you? Who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle. Verse 13, 14, Jesus is going to speak spiritually, metaphorically again. Here's what he says. Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. I'm going to meet your deepest need, your need for God. And the life, remember, water is a symbol of life. When you come to me, life's going to spring out of you. And he'll, he'll talk about this again in John 7. He's going to say, rivers of living water will flow out of you. You ever wonder why Jesus speaks in metaphor, cryptically? Here's why I think. He wants to know, how interested are you in me? I'm going to put stuff out there to make you think, to make you consider. If you're just looking for a show, turn some water into wine, raise a few deaths, still a storm, do this, and we'll be wild, you're going to miss it. But I think he speaks cryptically, enigmatically, do you want to know? Consider what I have to say. So that's how he's speaking to this woman. Verse 15, she's not getting it. The woman said to him, Sir, 
Give me this water so that I will not be thirsty nor come all the way here to draw. Again, she's thinking, I, I mean, I'm tired of making this hike out and I'm tired, you know, and it's hot and I'm on myself and, and yeah, give me some of that water. Okay, lady, you're not getting it. You're not getting it. So Jesus is not going to continue on this vein of thought. He's going to make an abrupt shift to get her attention. Here's what he says in verse 16. He said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you have correctly said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. Whoa, 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 whoa. We were talking about a little bit of water. And you say to me, go call my husband, and you roll out my whole sordid history. It's a big shift, don't you think? I thought we were just getting some water, and you're kind of laying me bare here. Remember we asked this question, why is this woman walking by herself when most women go in groups? And why is she going midday when most people would go early or late? Here's why I think it is. Nobody wants to be with her. Remember, she's a Samaritan woman, so we said she's marginalized. But she's being marginalized by the marginalized. I know your background. You stay away. You stay, I, I know how you are with men. You stay away. I, she's by herself. She's been exposed. What's she do? Verse 19, the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Again, Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 18, uh, Moses said there's a day coming when... There will be a prophet like Moses, and I will put my words in his mouth. And, and, and that's probably a, a reference to this. So, so you're that guy we've been looking for, maybe. So he's got a question. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain. Remember we said the difference. They weren't on Mount Gerizim. The Jews worshipped in, in Jerusalem at the temple. And you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. So Jesus, which is it? We've got a little bit of got confusion here. Here's what Jesus says. Woman, believe me, an hour. An hour is always referring to his crucifixion and resurrection. An hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. The place isn't going to matter. Real soon, the place isn't going to matter. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for the salvation is from the Jews. So just so you get it right, salvation is coming through the Jews. Line of David, Jesus is the fulfillment of that. But, back to the point at hand, an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship must worship in spirit and truth. The place, ladies, real soon, the place isn't going to matter. What's going to matter is what's going on in your heart. Is the worship that is there, is that being animated, is that being brought to life by the Spirit of God? And just so you know, that's a little objective. There are some, some objectives to this, um, some standards. It, does it conform to what's written in the Word of God? You want to know about worship? It ain't going to matter. The place ain't going to matter real soon. It's going to be, what is the Spirit of God doing in you and is what you perceive being done in conformity with what God says in His Word? Wow, this woman's really wild. Verse 25, the woman said to her, I know that the Messiah is coming, who is called the Christ. The whole Old Testament points to a Messiah. 
When that come, one comes, he will declare all things to us. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. That's a pretty loaded statement. The whole Old Testament talks about a Messiah and says, Jesus, I'm that guy. I'm that guy. Once in a while, I'll get somebody to call and, and, and they'll, they'll want to debate the deity of Jesus with me. And it's kind of like, why are you calling to have an argument? Are you calling to, because you're not going to convince me because I think it's all over the pages of the gospel that Jesus is the eternal son of God. The whole Old Testament points towards him. Okay, verse 27, at this point, his disciples came and they were amazed. Why were they amazed? Because he had been speaking with a woman. You don't do that, right? And yet no one said, what do you seek? Or why do you speak with her? No one said anything, but dude, you are breaking social norms. You are breaking social customs here. Why would you be talking with this woman? And to boot, she's a Samaritan. Verse 28, uh, so the woman left her water pot and went to the city and said to the men. One, one scholar said she, she left her, her, her concern about water for souls. She says, come see a man who told me all the things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? Now, look, I mean, she's not a woman with a good reputation. Five husbands, the guy you're living with is not your own. That's, that's not a good look. How will people respond? Verse 30. They went out of the city and were coming to him. But we're going to take a, a little focus off of the woman, a little segue to the disciples, because they come back. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. And Jesus is going to have another lesson for them. He said, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So again, the disciples miss it. Verse 33, they were saying to one, oh, no one brought him food to eat, did he? Did he do DoorDash? Did he do, what did he do? How did he get his food? Jesus said, uh, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Almost certainly Jesus has in mind Deuteronomy 8.3 where it says God does not live by bread alone but every word that comes out of God's mouth. He's got something bigger going on nourishing me and that's to do God's will. Jesus goes on on this object lesson. Verse 35 said, do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Remember, like we have a harvest season agriculturally. Jesus says it's different in the spiritual world. Verse 35, Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields that they are white for harvest. There are people now, right now, who are ready to come. We don't have to wait for harvest season. People who are under judgment, who want to leave that. Who, people who have been poisoned by sin, who can be cleansed. People are ready right now. And, and by the way, um, it's a team effort. Verse 36, already he who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for life eternal so that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. We're doing this together. For in this case, the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. So you may be sharing your testimony with somebody and somebody's going to come along six months from now and that person's going to be ready, but you planted the seed that they harvested. And, and God said, this is, a, this is the body of Christ working together. You bring a friend and they make a connection with somebody else. And but Jesus says the time for harvest is now. It is always pertinent. It is always time to be looking for people who want to transition to life. Remember when, when we segued away, the woman had, had gone to the city and, and, and it said uh, people came out because of her testimony to Jesus. Well, it picks back up again in verse 39. From that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him. 
because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all things that I have done. So, did you catch that? People came to Jesus because of the word of the sinful woman. Let me point out to you, she didn't have a seminary degree. She hadn't gone to Sunday school. She hadn't even attended Awana. And there's nothing wrong with seminary, there's nothing wrong with Sunday school, and there's nothing wrong with Awana at all. I'm not criticizing them. But I'm saying, God can use your test. Oh, Andy, I don't know much. I don't, you know. God's not limited by your ability. He wants your availability. The woman's not long in the kingdom of Jesus if she's in at all. And she comes out there and says, let me, let me tell you, I mean, I went to draw some water and, and this guy starts telling me and, and, and I, I think he might be legit. What do you guys think? So when the Samaritan came to Jesus, they were asking him to stay with them and he stayed there two days. Don't miss that. The Jews and the Samaritans don't go along and the Samaritans just asked a Jewish rabbi to stay two more days. Usually it's kind of like, get out, dude. You don't belong here. Get out. No, no, no. We want you to stay two more days. The Spirit of God is working through this woman. Catch this. Many more believe because of his word, and they were saying to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we leave, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. Seriously. Through a sinful woman. Hadn't been to church five husbands, guy she's living with, not. I mean, you talk about on the margin of the margin. And Jesus breaks all social norms, all social expectations, and strikes up a conversation with her. Remember we asked this question? How does Jesus interact with the marginalized? Here we go. Jesus cherishes the marginalized, marginalized people. Working in and through them. Did you catch that? The people we think, oh, no, 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 no. Jesus cherishes marginalized people working in and through them. I think most of us have had experience feeling like we're on the margin and looking down on people who we perceive to be on the margin. So when I was in the first grade, my family moved from suburban Boston to suburban Detroit, and uh, we moved into the most well-to-do uh, sub, uh, suburb of Detroit, Gross Point. It was right on Lake St. Clair. I think we were three or four blocks. The wealthier you were, the more you lived in the lake. We were about three or four blocks from the Detroit unincorporated line, but my parents wanted to get us in on that tax base because great schools, great parks, all that kind of stuff. I mean, the Ford Estate. Like Henry Ford, the estate was in Gross Point. When my dad coached my older brother's uh, baseball team, one of the kids said, Mr. McFarland, my, my grandma's a millionaire, and back in 1968, a million bucks was a lot, and we thought, you're crazy, but it turns out he was Mrs. Dodge's grandson, so that's a legit thing. Your, your grandma is a millionaire. Comparative is the word. I, I felt comparatively poor. And we were middle class, but we were living among the wealthy. And you know where I most felt on the margin? the Monday after spring break. Because 70% of my class came back with a tan. Okay, you didn't get that in Michigan in March. 
You got it because your family flew to Florida. And back then it was expensive to fly. And so the conversation at lunch was, we were in Sarasota, you were in Fort Myers, where were you? And I, I wasn't in that, that conversation. I felt on the margin. And really all the way through eighth grade, because of where I lived, I, I felt on the margin. Remember in middle school, our, our middle school was a, a kind of a place where we served the, the, the hearing impaired. And this is before cochlear implants. And so they were communicating with sign language. And let me tell you, they were different. And because I was on the margin, there was no way I was going to move towards somebody else that was on the margin. I, I, I mean, I had my own insecurities and stuff, so uh-uh, you just left them there. Well, we move again my eighth grade year after my eighth grade year to Chicago, and I think this is a chance maybe to flip the script of my life. I can be different. I can start anew, and we move, and we go up to the pool. I would swim all four years in high school, and I get up there and meet the coach. This is the summer before my freshman year, and I look at the record for the 50-yard backstroke, and I thought, I already got that. So I just need to swim one meet. And so I did in November, and then in December or January, there's a freshman unit swimming in PE, so everybody sees my name up there. All of a sudden, man, I'm a cool, wisecracking jock. <laughs> you can see that, can't you, Nate? Yeah. And I know 1,800 of 2,000 people. I'm friends with yearbook, band people, student government people, but you know what? There were some greasers, and they were people who smoked, and they dressed differently. On the margin, would I talk with them? Mm -mm. Because of who they were. They smoked, don't you know? No, we drank, but they smoked. (laughs) We've all been there, haven't we? Where we felt on the margin or look down on people who we perceive to be on the margin. The only person I know who has never lived on the margin is our student pastor, Nate Gotchell. He has always been in, he has always been cool. So he's having trouble relating to this message. But let me ask you, who are the people in your life that you see on the margin? People different politics than you? To educate your kids differently than you do? You homeschool and they Christian school? Are they public school? Are they different lifestyle? Different ethnicity? Men, they're loud, you're quiet, and, and, and you got people, then, man, they, they will stay on your margin. You know what Jesus says? <laughs> you know what Jesus modeled? You need to move towards those people. Those people you say, ah, no, because that's what Jesus did. He cherished the marginalized. In large part, I think, because they had nothing else, they would look to him. Jesus got three years to build a leadership team to take the gospel of the world, and he majored in the marginalized. So maybe you're here and you're feeling like, I'm one of these marginalized. Andy, I know what that is be on the margin. Let me tell you, this, this interaction with this woman is not a standalone thing. You got a New Testament, first gospel, it's written by Matthew. You know, Matthew was on the margin before he met Jesus. He was a tax collector. Israel was occupied by Rome, and the tax collectors worked for Rome. 
And they, they made money by ripping, by overcharging people and lining their pockets. And they were hated by the Jews. And Jesus said, yeah, you'll be the guy who writes my first gospel. I had a New Testament process that I don't think Jesus ever got, or Matthew ever got over the fact that Jesus loved them. If Jesus goes after those kind of people as his followers, what about you and me? One more, Mary Magdalene, possessed by seven demons. <laughs> Left, rejected. Jesus casts those seven demons out. Mary Magdalene is part of, Luke 8 talks about a bunch of women who, who finance. How did Jesus, who financed Jesus' ministry? Well, a bunch of women did as he did this itinerant ministry. And then, when Jesus is crucified and his body's laid in the tomb, you know who's there? Mary Magdalene and some other women. Then, you know who goes to the tomb Sunday morning? Mary Magdalene and a bunch of women. You know who the first one is to tell the disciples, who, by the way, are in hiding, that, hey, Jesus is re he's really alive. It's this Mary Magdalene who is possessed by seven demons. See, Jesus is big, big, big unmarginalized people. Cherishes them. Working in and through them. Last thought. You work with some people, some people in your sphere of influence. Is there any way you could share your testimony about what God's done? And what, what, just what, you don't have to drop the scripture, don't have to drop a gospel bomb on them. What has God done in your life? Who knows what God might do? What, what did you do through this woman? No background, no nothing. Oh, about a month ago, I was at the dentist's office. I was getting a crown fixed, which means they put a shot in, they, put, they drill. And so they got a TV right in front of you. And I had decided I'm going to watch whatever's on TV to distract me. And it's HGTV. And they've got closed captioning, which is good. I'm going to focus on that story. And, Doc, you do what you need to do. And, and this story is there's two sisters that come in with people who can't sell their house. The house has been on the market three months or six months or something, and we can't sell it, we need to move it, it's an estate, it's whatever it is. And these sisters go through the house, and they tell you what, I, I would update the backsplash there, and I'd redo the bathroom, and I'd redo this, and it's all gonna cost 20,000, and, and so I think we could sell, once we do it, we could sell it for an 80,000 more, so we'll take 20,000 out, that'll leave you 60 grand, we'll split that with you, and, 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 and then they, they do the thing, and then the house sells, and the people who couldn't sell it, sell it, and they make a profit, and everybody. But I thought, you know, that's a great example of Jesus, isn't it? <laughs> this thing's run down. This thing's trash. Whoa, 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 whoa. Let me get in and do some work there. Let me get in. We, we can make this thing a thing of beauty. Give me a little time. The only thing is Jesus doesn't charge. He paid the price on the cross. It's true in everybody's life, but it's really true in the life of the marginalized person. Let's not be neglecting those folks because Jesus ain't. He majored in them. How did Jesus act among the marginalized? He cherished them, working in and through them. Would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, uh, we're grateful, challenged for sure, by this story of a woman at a well. Five husbands, not the guy you're living with isn't your husband. It's a bad track record. He's drawing water by herself left alone, rejected. Jesus said, that's my kind of person. <laughs> Lord, that we would follow our Savior. We follow Jesus. Oh, yes, we raise our hand. We follow Jesus. We would follow 
Jesus by cherishing people who are on the margin, knowing that you're working in and through them. Lord, empower us to live differently because we know the Savior. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.